As the 8 to 10 year olds are dismissed, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34 is our text for the morning. And if you're new here, when we dismiss the 8 to 10 year olds, just so you know, it's um, those 8 to 10 year olds that want to go to their other class and learn are able to go. You can keep your 8 to 10 year olds here if you'd like. It's up to you as the parents, but just a heads up, when we dismiss them, it's not like, well, the pastor said you have to leave. Get out of here. They don't have to leave. Um, but if they'd like, there's some teaching more at their level up there. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, <clears throat> I'm sorry, 17 to 34. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be It is not the Lord's table that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another... What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give you directions when I come. We're in a section, as I mentioned last week, where the Lord is, uh, by the Holy Spirit, by the pen of the Apostle Paul, talking to the church at Corinth about what to, what to do when they gather as a local church. We know that these instructions then our New Covenant churches, which, which we are and we're to learn from them. This whole section from chapter 11 through 14 is addressing some of the things they're doing well uh, last week and also some of the things they're not doing well when they come to gather together. And this week is the, as you can see from the beginning of the passage, things that he doesn't commend them in, but he also thinks that they need instruction. I'm entitled this message, How to Eat the Lord's Supper. That's really what Paul's doing. And at the beginning of the passage, he talks about how not to eat, how they're eating it, and then later on, how they are to eat it, how they are to consider one another. I've entitled, again, the whole 
the whole section, 11 through 14, when we gather, because again, that is what the focus is in these chapters. What should the body look like when they gather? How are the Corinthians not well? And so Paul gives the church instructions for when. Specifically today, verses 17 through 34, how to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, dining is important. Dining was important in the, in the ancient world. Dining is important. Come to a table says something. How you eat at a table says something about your concern for the others around the table. Chewing with your mouth open, you know, and doing all sorts of other inappropriate things at the table really is a way of either loving or not loving the people that you're around. And a couple weeks ago, I gave as the title for the passage in chapter 10, uh, Lessons to Learn from Eating a Meal, and Paul's showing them lessons to learn. And so he continues those lessons here in verses 17 through 34. I, I, I was curious, so I looked up some different dining rules that are out there, and I found some dining rules in Food and Wine magazine, and I thought, I wonder what they say about how to dine, and I wonder how well I'm doing. Well, I don't think I'm doing well. Uh, lift your menu off the table. Did you know that? Yeah. So. Don't clink or do cheers. Never ask for an oyster fork. Some of you need to stop doing that. Yeah. It's a big problem here in Prescott. Keep the rim of your plates as clean as possible. Place discards or things you're not eating, maybe like rinds of a lemon on the upper left part of your plate. Keep your bread on the times unless you are delivering it to your mouth. I love that, delivering it to your mouth. Yeah. Oh, food and wine. Fold your napkin with crease toward you before putting it in your lap. Never say you are going to the restroom. Just excuse yourself. Don't say bon appetit. I have no idea why, but... Food and wine knows. Leave one bite left on your plate. So, we evidently fail by the nature of your responses. But that's according to food and wine. You can find different rules in different places. There was a country living website which gave different rules. Um, you could go to Brooks Brothers and buy a book called How to Raise a Gentleman and find different rules on dining. In 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, there are divine rules for how to participate in the Lord's table. There are commands given by God Himself for how to eat the common meal that we in this church eat together every, uh, twice every month. And so, this isn't something, you know, you can take or leave food and wine, I'll leave their rules, you know, if, just to speak bluntly. Here, we can't take or leave these. This is our Lord who only commands things for our good, instructing us on how to eat the Lord's table. The Corinthians needed this lesson in how to partake of the Lord's table. As we've seen throughout the first 10 chapters, they were a church that was tempted towards selfishness. That's the way the culture was around them. And again, the point of this whole book is don't operate in the church or with one another according to the same principles that the world around you operates by. And selfishness and climbing the ladder and stepping on people was a big part of Corinth, and evidently that had been kind of brought into the church. That's just kind of what they were used to, and so this is how they lived, selfishly, with factions, not caring about other people's consciences. This is a theme all throughout 1 Corinthians. 
And they were bringing their selfishness, their disregard for one another, even into the Lord's table meal that they shared. This is more than putting elbows on a table or misplacing your bread. They were failing to treat one another with respect and care. And errors of the same kind are evident in local churches today. So this morning, how to eat the Lord's Supper, three lessons to learn about participating rightly in the Lord's Supper. Three lessons to learn about participating rightly in the Lord's Supper, and we are, at the end of our service, going to participate in the Lord's Supper. Again, we do that on the first Sunday of the month and the third Sunday of the month. That's our normal practice, and we want you to know that ahead of time. That's why we stick to those Sundays so that you're aware, largely because of the things written in this passage this morning. So three lessons to learn about participating rightly in the Lord's Supper. First, let's notice the wrong way of eating at the table. Verses 17 to 22, the wrong way of eating at the table. Now, remember, there are divisions in this church. Remember what they were divided over? Favorite teeth. We saw that in chapter 1. Saw that in chapter 4. They're divided between rich and poor. We know they're divided between Jew and Gentile. There are divisions in this church. And they evidently think that these, uh, they don't think these divisions or having these divisions were a big deal even when they came together in a meal that symbolized their unity with one another. So they were not unified as they ate a meal which symbolized, was meant to symbolize their unity. Now, just again to give you a little bit of the lay of the land in Corinth on concerning divisions in the church, there was a Jew-Gentile division. Think about it. How would Jews who were now trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, how would they be eating Lord's table? Well, probably in very similar ways that they ate the Passover, right? They grew up eating the Passover, celebrating God's freedom of his people or, or re- redemption of his people from Egypt. They would have celebrated the Passover. Jesus Christ himself at a Passover meal turned that meal into the Lord's table meal, the Lord's supper meal that we participate in today. So the Jews, their Lord's table meal now on this side of the cross, embracing Christ, would look a lot like the Old Testament Passover meal. You also had Gentiles in this Corinthian church who wouldn't have eaten the Lord's table like that in the same way. You think that could have caused a little bit of conflict? Absolutely. He's getting a report according to verse 18. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. We know again from chapter 1 that Chloe and her people reported to the Apostle Paul and told him about the factions and divisions. And he addresses those in chapter 1, and again, also, like I mentioned, in chapter 4. And those divisions he highlights then were about a lot about the, their favorite teachers. Here again, he brings up the divisions again, and they were bringing that into the Lord's table. So not just you Gentile, but maybe people sitting at the meal who were of the Apollos party, of the Paul party, of the Peter party, that division would have been true at that meal. <clears throat> we'll see from this passage, there is also a rich-poor division in the church at Corinth. And you see this from the early days of Christianity. Look at Acts 2, 42 and following. Acts 2, 42 and following talk about the sharing the believers had now. They're now brought into this assembly together. They now trust in Jesus together. They're now brothers and sisters. So people don't go hungry in the church. We do whatever it takes to share our resources so that there aren't people going hungry in the church. You see that right from the beginning when the Holy Spirit 
comes upon the new covenant believers. Now here in Corinth, they still had those differences. And remember I told you before, there was a famine at this time in Corinth. So evidently as they came to celebrate the Lord's table, there were still people in the church missing meals and the rich Christians in the church didn't seem to care. In the culture of Corinth, so this is not even Christian Corinth, in the culture of Corinth, the rich would eat in one place, the poor of a household would eat in another place. The rich would eat the food first, the poor would eat second. And evidently, this is what they were bringing in to the church gathering. Another problem that we see in this passage, the Passover feast had a number of cups, four cups, Jesus took the third cup that night when he was eating with the disciples and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Well, in Gentile feasts that happened often in Corinth, there were also multiple servings of wine at a meal. And people would get more and more drunk as the meal went on. Paul criticizes drunkenness at the Lord's table in our passage today. And evidently they were using that third cup, kind of like the after dinner wine where you really got drunk. So that's going on. So this church is participating in the Lord's Supper in a way that's quite a mess. All sorts of divisions, all sorts of factions, drunkenness. And so Paul, no wonder, writes to them and says in verse 17, in the following instructions, I don't commend you. Now remember last week, chapter 11, verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And then he goes on to talk about men's and women's roles in the church. And I told you last week that the problem of women usurping men's roles and men not leading in the church was evidently not a problem that a large portion of the church had, it was just some in the church. And so overall, he commends the church for upholding biblical gender roles in the corporate gathering of the church. Here, he looks at the corporate gathering of the church and says, we're done with the commendations. You're not doing this part well. I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, which is what should happen when the people come together for the Lord's table, but for the worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. He's heard one side of the story, but it seems to make sense to him. I believe this. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, this is interesting. There's a problem in the Corinthian church. There are factions, there are problems, but Paul for a moment zooms out and puts on his spiritual lenses and shows really one of the benefits, though, of conflict. What can come out of conflict? What is it in verse 19? in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. We can see in this conflict and how it fleshes out and how people respond to the conflict who are actually the genuine followers of Christ. Conflict reveals things. Conflict between people reveals things. Sometimes conflict in the church can see to foster this idea of who are you really following? Are you following your own flesh or are you following the way of Christ? Are you resolving conflict the way Christ calls you to, or are you doing it in some fleshly way? And that's telling. Interesting words there. For there must be factions among you, 
Evidently, God's ordained and allowed certain things to happen so that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20, back to the issue at hand, when you come together, it's not the Lord's table that you eat. Now, they would have been saying that they were coming together for the Lord's table. What are you guys doing here? There's all this food. There are kind of people milling around. Oh, we're here to partake of the Lord's table. And Paul says in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's table you're eating. It's not. Imagine driving home one day and your son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter is out there and they've got a dry paper towel and they're wiping the side of the car. And you drive up and you say, what are you doing? I'm washing the car. No, no, no. You think you're washing the car, but you're not washing the car. Here's how you wash the car. That's kind of what he's saying here. You, you say you're partaking of the Lord's table, you're not partaking of the Lord's table. This is not how he determined this meal to be eaten. You're not eating the Lord's table. This is something altogether different. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So again, in Corinth, understand this, oftentimes the rich would eat first. The people who had the resources would enjoy them and the poor would be left to fend for themselves. And it's kind of staggering for us to think that that was happening then, even in the church. Even the place where they gathered, some of these large homes where churches gathered in the first century had large vestibule areas, maybe think of it as kind of like foyer areas, and that's where the poor would often eat and the rich would kind of eat in the inner recesses of the house or the, the inner courtyard of the house. And so this is what's, what was happening. The, the rich come first, they go into the central area, they're dining, and then the poor kind of eating later on, kind of in the back. Again, that's just what their culture did. They were used to it. And Paul's drawn a line here and says, no, this is one of the areas that we actually separate from the culture. We do this differently. We gather and eat together. And if there are poor people, we're in a famine here. If there are poor people who can't eat in the church, we share. No one goes hungry in the family of God. But evidently, they were moving on ahead and preferring themselves. Again, that's the common theme so often in 1 Corinthians. You zoom out and you look at selfishness all throughout these chapters, preferring of self all throughout these chapters. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you want to eat your finest foods and drink your finest wines and, and th then do that at your home? You have houses to eat and drink in, but when you come together in a corporate meal, it's no longer just about you. You look out for one another. Or do you despise strong language? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So it's not just about, about what food they're eating and what food they're not eating. It's, it's about what message that sends. And Paul thinks that as they prefer themselves, they're really not considering they're looking down on other people in the church, and they're even failing to respect the word for humiliate there, failing to respect those who have nothing. Again, selfishness, preferring self, not thinking of another's needs. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This is the wrong way of eating at the table. What, what does it mean for us? We don't, you know, we, when we 
partake of the Lord's table, largely because of the type of room we're in and the space we're at. It's not a big banquet or meal. It's a little cracker and a little cup of juice. So it's not as if, well, I'm going to wait and make sure everyone's got enough so they don't go hungry. Well, I'll tell you, when I take that little cracker, it's still getting to be around 1130 and I'm getting hungry. So, so we're not in the same place culturally, but what are the things true of the heart that we can learn from here? There's a selfishness with this people. There is a, a failure to respect other people in the body. And there's even kind of a despising of other people in the body. And Paul says that's not right when you come together. So I would simply ask the question, this is how I, when I read my Bible and go through it, here's the spiritual issue with them. Andrew, is there any way there's any selfishness in your heart toward the body of Christ or people in the body? Is there any despising? Is there any failure to respect? It's good to drag your heart through that and see what's there. Bring it to the Lord. So this is the wrong way of eating the table. Now let's look at the right way of eating the table. And I'll tell you, this is the highlight of the passage, this middle part. The right way of eating at the table, this is how Jesus eats at the table. This is so good. Verses 23 to 26, <clears throat> they're, they're eating the wrong way. Now he points them to the right way to eat, and he points them to a person. He points them to Christ. I love this. Earlier on in chapter 9, remember when we went through chapter 9, and Paul's saying, follow my example in how I do this. Here he, for a moment, takes himself out of the equation and says, listen, you need to follow Jesus' example in this communion meal. And so this is the context of the words that we've read together twice a month for the last eight years. Here's the context, and it really comes alive as we see it in relation to where we've been in 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So, so I've got this tradition from the Lord, this tradition where He had this meal, inaugurated the Lord's table, and now I'm passing it on to you. And this is, this is why we do it 2,000 years later, because the Lord did it in that upper room that night that He was betrayed. The apostles then taught it to the churches, and they said, do this in a remembrance toward Christ, of Christ, and that's why we do this. So there's a tradition, Paul passes it on, and he says this at the, at the, in the second part of 23, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. This is so good. This is why it's good. You can read Matthew's account of the Lord's table, Mark's account of the Lord's table, and Luke's account. Those are the three Gospels where the account of the Lord's table is given. And nowhere does it say on the night he was betrayed, this is what he did. Paul's adding this in. Why? He doesn't say the night before his trial. He doesn't say the night before his death. He focuses on Christ's betrayal. He tells the Corinthian church who prefer themselves who love themselves, who think little of certain other people in the church, who even maybe despise some of the other people in the church. He says, when Jesus was betrayed, and he was betrayed by one of those eating at the table with him, who also was Jesus betrayed by? That group that he was eating with, in just a matter of hours, at his arrest, they all left him. Peter, in just a matter of hours, denied any association with him. 
We studied this when we looked at the Gospel of Mark. When Jesus died on the cross, he died alone. On the night he was betrayed, they preferred themselves. He gave of himself to them. He sacrificed for them, and that's what the meal pictured. He gave of himself. That's why Paul includes this right here to the church at Corinth. They came to church thinking of self, thinking of their needs, their wants, their desires, not thinking about one another. Jesus came to the assembled meeting with his disciples, and he thought of them. He gave to them. That's why Paul starts this saying, on the night he was betrayed, and we had given thanks for the bread, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, so often when we read these verses, again, disconnected from the context, we think, okay, when I take the Lord's table, I'm remembering Jesus' death. But based on the context, it's bigger than that, isn't it? When we partake of the Lord's table, we don't just remember He died for me. We also remember He brought me near when I didn't deserve to be brought near. So, how do I eat this meal? Are there people that are far from me that should be close to me in the body? That's how I remember His death. I honor His death by how I treat my brothers and sisters. Jesus didn't say, okay, guys, I've washed your feet, gave you some instructions about how difficult life's going to be when I leave. This is in the upper room. This is not how he did it. And then he gets to the table and says, you know what? I mean, you guys got some issues. You were just arguing about which one's greater. So Peter, let me just have a one-on-one meal with you. This is my body shed for you. Here's my blood, new covenant. Me and you, Peter, we're good. Because I know you kind of have a difference with John right now. So so we'll just kind of do this, me and you. And John, come over here. I know you're at odds with Peter and maybe Andrew and Simon. Okay, just me and you. That's not what he did. I don't know what Jesus was thinking as he broke that bread. But could it have been, as he's handing it out, he's going to leave, he's going to leave, he's going to betray, he's going to leave. He, even though he said he wouldn't deny me, is going to do it three times. He's going to leave, he's going to leave, he's going to leave. And guess what Jesus didn't do that night? He didn't walk out of the upper room and say, forget it. He gave of himself to those men. Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to see the right way of eating at the table, and the right way is the Christ-like way. The right way is being at odds with other people in the body and seeking to make it right, and then coming together, remembering that even the things that divide us are nothing compared to the thing, the person that unites us, Jesus Christ. We're brothers and sisters. We'll be together forever. He's assembled us in the local congregations to work at loving one another, to work at uniting, and to give of ourselves even when the other person doesn't respond rightly. On the night he was betrayed, he gave you the Lord's Supper. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I love this. Those men who would betray him, deny him, forsake all association with him for a time, that night when he gave them the cup, he was giving them his eternal commitment to them, the covenant. 
it's so much more beautiful when you, again, recognize why Paul's writing it. They left him, he didn't leave them. This cup is the new covenant, and when God makes a covenant, he keeps it. In my blood, this, this, this cup symbolizes my blood. I, I've died for you in order to eternally secure you. I shed my blood for you so that you would have eternal life and salvation with me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And again, based on the context, this isn't just, oh, Jesus died for me, I'm forever his. It also should cause us to think, how am I loving the people that he's assembled me with that he also died for? Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So based on the context of this book, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, it's not that we're just proclaiming his death in a way that means something to us. We proclaim his death rightly when we not just enjoy the salvation he gives us, but when that actually means something for how we love one another. A true proclaiming of the Lord's death will mean that we're giving ourselves to one another, that we're forgiving one another, that we're we're seeking reconciliation with one another, that we're seeking unity. Listen, in John, I've kind of mentioned a few different things that had happened in John 13 through 17, even so far in this uh, sermon. I've highlighted things that he did that night in the upper room. At the end of that that meal, we get John 17, the prayer he prays to the Father. And you know what he prays for in that prayer? Father, I pray that they may be one. He prays for the unity of the disciples and the unity of those who would believe by their word, the word, the gospel that they proclaim once Jesus has now ascended to heaven as the disciples go and scatter throughout the world and they proclaim the gospel, now those who believe the gospel, he prays that they would be one. That's us. So when you partake of the Lord's table, it's not just about me. I'm thinking about how Jesus loved me. Well, that's a good start, but there's a reason we do it here and not privately at home, just by ourselves. We do it here. Because it was meant to be a family meal, a meal where all the disciples were around the table, even those two that were arguing about which ones were greater. God brings them both to the table. Jesus brings them both to the table. He says, this is my body broken for you and you. You've got something in common there, guys. Can you imagine... Lord institutes this Lord's Supper. He's arrested. They all leave. He dies, rises three days later, reveals himself to so many eyewitnesses, ascends to heaven, and we know that he sent them out throughout the world then from there. He scattered them. Hey, get this message about my salvation everywhere. Now imagine them partaking Lord's table right before they all scatter. Philip, where are you going? Oh, I guess I'll be on the road and meet this Ethiopian guy and then God will like teleport me somewhere else and where are you going to go, James? I'll be kind of in Jerusalem and uh, right before they all scatter. Just imagine them before they all scatter partaking the Lord's table again. And imagine that some conflict has arisen for some reason. 
Again, maybe Peter and John are at odds, or James and Peter, or whoever it may be. I, I have a feeling Peter's in there somewhere. Um, <clears throat> maybe there's some conflict again. Jesus has already ascended. He gave them a picture of the Lord's table. They get together. If there was conflict at that supper, certainly one of them would have said, no, 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 guys, we got to make this right before we do this. They would have known now that they have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, that they've seen the example of Christ. They would have known as we gather in this meal, we've got to work out the conflict. We don't take this physically together, but in our minds and hearts separately. We don't do that, guys. Paul, an apostle from Jesus Christ, is calling the church, when you come together, that that phrase, that that word is used throughout this passage, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, and he's calling them to come together in their hearts, not just physically. I have a dream. You want to hear one of my hopes for our new church building? When we get our building, one of my hopes is that on some Lord's Table Sundays, after the service, we can all eat together. That there's an outdoor space, maybe on days like this, and there's indoor space, but that we could all sit at a bunch of round tables and bring our food. Maybe there's food there for people that can't bring theirs, whatever it may be, and then we eat together on Lord's Table Sundays. I don't know what you think about that. I get excited about that. And as I've let some of those dreams leak out to people, uh, I've heard some people say, that would be great, that would be wonderful. So imagine that. Lord's Table Sundays after church, we kind of sit around and we hang out together and eat lunch together as a church. Now let me throw a little twist into that scenario. Imagine if all the tables were assigned. There was assigned seating. Some of you right now are thinking of people that you don't want to sit by. that would be awkward. We would just leave and go get in and out that day. Okay, but think about that. What if the tables were assigned? Some might spend more energy complaining about the fact that tables were assigned than pursuing reconciliation with other believers. Some would duck out. Some would conveniently get sick that Sunday. I wonder what people would do to avoid that meal. Lord's table is a good thing for a church to do. It's a good thing for Christians to do, to assess their love, their forgiveness, their long-suffering, their pursuit of reconciliation, their preferring of others, their sacrifice for others. It's a good thing for us to do. And our Lord knew exactly what he was doing when he instituted it. And Paul knew exactly what he was saying when he talked to the Corinthian church. We might even think, I'm glad that uh, Andrew's little scenario there, I'm glad that's not happening today, where someone forces me to sit with them. Well, I'm sorry to rain on your parade. That's exactly what we're doing today. The Lord has brought us together today at the end of the service to partake of the Lord's table. Yes, we're separated by rows and a giant slant in the room, but we are eating at the same table And it wasn't me who assigned the seats. The Lord has brought us together. And he intends for us 
to eat, not just relishing in the fact that He loves us individually, but that He's also brought us to a common table with other people that He loves that we might not always see eye to eye with. He knows what He's doing. So learn from Jesus the right way of eating at His table. So we consider how He gave Himself at that table 2,000 years ago. And now, the third lesson, the new way of eating at the table. So we've seen the old way that the Corinthians were engaged in, the new way, which is, I'm sorry, the, the, the right way, which is found in Jesus. Now that means something for us. So see Paul's progression here. Here's what you did wrong. Here's the example Jesus. Now here's your new way. All right? Third point, the new way of eating at the table. Verse 27. Whoever therefore, in light of what I just told you about how Jesus ate at this meal, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I know I'm, I'm just a, I repeat this so often. Know your Bible in its context. When we parachute into this verse, Whoever eats the bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, we start thinking silly things like, okay, I got the bread and the cup. Am I worthy to be eating this today? The answer is never yes. No, I'm not. I'm never worthy in and of myself of sitting at God's table at peace with Him. Never. The only reason I can sit at that table is because He gave His merit to me and His Son. He gave me the righteousness of His Son. That's why we sit at the table and we say, I don't belong here, but I do belong here because of Christ. None of us are ever worthy to partake of the Lord's table in and of ourselves. This is not talking about whether you've had a perfect week or a perfect last couple of weeks. Am I worthy to be eating this? No. None of us ever are if we look at ourselves in our own performance. This isn't talking about that. What's it talking about in context? How am I considering those around me? How am I loving and giving and serving and reconciling with and forbearing? How am I doing that with the body around me? That's eating it in a worthy manner. That's the right way to eat it, you could say. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. The very purpose the Lord gave His body and blood is to forgive our sins, to be a picture of forgiving our sins. So when we go on sinning against others, as we celebrate Him forgiving us, it makes no sense. It does not make sense. Lord, thank You for forgiving me, but Barry over there, I am not forgiving him. That does not make sense. You are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is how you examine yourself. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. See, there's what it means to examine. This isn't an examination of self like, okay, what unconfessed sin is there in me? Now, I don't think that's a bad thing to to do. I think that's appropriate to do. But that's not what Paul's talking about specifically here, is it? 
Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, we know the body he's talking about there. It's not our own body. He's not calling you to look at your wrists or your legs and how am I doing today? The body of Christ. We see that played out in chapter 12, chapter 14. He's constantly talking about the body of Christ. So if you're taking the Lord's table and you're not thinking about your own heart's response to the body around you, you're doing it wrongly. Partaking the Lord's table is a time for you to say, how am I loving or not loving my brothers and sisters? How am I preferring myself in light of my brothers and sisters? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Notice what Paul's saying. To continue in selfish disunity in the body is one of the reasons that maybe God has disciplined you with sickness and even illness. Now, some of you are not all the way well, or any of us really. <laughs> some of you have maladies and physical things. And I'll tell you something that no doctor in Prescott will ever tell you. Is it possible there's a lack of love in your heart for your brothers and sisters? No doctor's going to say that. More fiber, iron, eat this, don't eat that. There could be a spiritual reason to this. And again, that's why we come to church, because no one out there is going to tell us this. But Paul's saying God disciplines people when there's disunity in the body, and it could be that he's sidelining some of you. That's what Paul's saying. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now, I don't think this is the best application of this. I, I wouldn't go home and try to, God, are you doing this because I haven't forgiven this person? Do I, do I feel sick lately because I'm not showing love? Like, I wouldn't spend time trying to figure out, is this of God? I would just obey what he says to do here. Spend time there. Instead of, is, is my headache because of, I don't know. And don't ask me. What does he want here from you and from me? Unity, love, selflessness, considering others, not despising others. So let's just major there and let God deal with the headache in his time. Let's major on what he is trying to get us to see. But Paul is highlighting the fact that there is sometimes discipline that comes to us physically when we're not demonstrating Christ-likeness among the body. Verse 31, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. This is good. <clears throat> when God disciplines us, when God gives us trials, it's a good thing to do to constantly ask, how does God want me to respond in this trial? <clears throat> how does God want me to obey in this situation in that way, in that situation? What does following Christ look like in this situation, in that situation? That's the question to ask. Is my heart veering off the road here? Is my flesh getting too much control in my life here? Judge ourselves rightly. Judge ourselves truly. Now, now we're always in favor of ourselves, right? Hey, is it perhaps you know, a possibility that you haven't forgiven that brother? 
No way, no way. I've totally forgiven them. I just haven't talked to them in five years. Yeah, let's judge ourselves truly. Ask the Lord. Humble yourself. Ask the Lord, God, show me. Is there really a lack of forgiveness? Is there really a lack of caring about other people in the body? Is there a selfishness there? Judge yourselves truly so that you would not be judged finally. Verse 31, we, if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged by God. It's a good thing to allow the Lord's conviction to, to then make us come to grips with what's true in our hearts and to be honest about it and to bring it before the Lord and let Him forgive it and let Him change it rather than continue on in the pursuit of that. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is what the world does. They do wrong. They might have consequences for it. They don't care about the consequences. They don't care to repent of the wrong. They just keep doing it, and one day it leads to final judgment. That's not the way of a Christian. When we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we would not be condemned along with the world. So at some point in that process, there is us coming to grips with what we've been doing and saying, no more, Lord. I should not have been doing that. I'm bringing that to you. Forgive that. I trust you to forgive that. Change me, Lord. Keep changing me. Let me operate in the body like you operated with your disciples. At some point, that comes into play for a believer so that we're not condemned like the rest of the world is. Now, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 because I think this is part of what was happening to these people. Hebrews chapter 12 book of Hebrews written to people who professed faith in Christ, but were thinking about going back to Judaism because evidently there's persecution and even trouble with other Christians once you become a Christian. And they're thinking about leaving because it's too hard, it's too difficult. And the writer of Hebrews writes to them about being disciplined by God. And he teaches them some things about it. And evidently, I want you to see this when it comes up in the passage. Evidently, part of their discipline involved how they were dealing with other people in the body. Listen to this in light of our passage in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is training you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? So our father spiritually disciplines us for our good. If you're not disciplined by a father, you could ask the question, does the father really love me? So when God disciplines you, we remember he's doing this for a reason. He loves me. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time, these earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. This has lasting effects so that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, 
so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So when God disciplines us, we've evidently been going down a crooked path, a different way, and Paul's saying, bring it back, make it straight again. God's disciplining you for this. Learn from it. Respond. Verse 14, now evidently this discipline has involved their relationship with other people in the body. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. It's so interesting here that he talks about to a group of people that are saying, we're uncomfortable, we're persecuted, we're experiencing suffering as Christians, and evidently it involved maybe other people in the body that maybe they weren't happy with or weren't related too well. And he says, don't let a root of bitterness spring up. That defiles. For some of you, there may may be roots of bitterness that you've allowed to flower and flourish as you think about the body. Put that root to death. Let the Lord teach you. Let the the Lord draw you back to following him as the example of love. And how he suffered long with his disciples and gave himself to his disciples who continually wronged him and offended him. Think about it this way. The Lord's been very, very, very patient with you this week. We can be patient with our brothers and sisters this week. The Lord's forgiven you of your sin this week. You can forgive your brothers and sisters. The Lord has been long-suffering toward you as you've offended Him this week. That's what He does. We, We praise the Lord for His faithfulness to us. Now can we be long-suffering to one another? This is what Paul's getting at. There's a new way of eating at the table. Back to 1 Corinthians. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Listen, I know some of you have a lot, he's saying, eat that at home. When you come together, this isn't about you. This is about you being part of a group, a body. And there's some that are in the midst of a famine here. So when you come together, share, care for, love them. So that when you come together, it won't be for judgment. Don't eat judgment on yourself. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. Paul says, this is good for now. In our culture, it might not be that people are going hungry when they come here on the Lord's Day on the first and third Sundays of the month, but are there ways that when I come together to worship the Lord on a Sunday, I'm really despising those that are assembled here, some of those assembled here, I'm preferring myself as to what other people desire. Is there anything true there? There's a new way of eating at the table. And it's to consider eating the Lord's Supper like the Lord ate the Lord's Supper. Bearing with, loving, giving of self to those around the table. I've got some just final wrap-up implications for us. First, I don't want you to miss this. I think this is preeminent. That's why Paul 
lays this passage out the way he does. Consider Jesus and his selflessness for those who offended him. Consider Jesus and his selflessness for those who offended him. And the Lord's table is an appropriate time for us to do that. That's why churches so often schedule it out. This is when you can count on it because it's good to think through this prior to coming. Second, the solution to conflict is to love and pursue reconciliation. This is what our Lord taught. The solution to conflict is to love and pursue reconciliation. I did not say the solution to conflict is when they stop sinning. Got it? The solution to conflict is to love and pursue reconciliation. Hebrews 12, Romans 12, Colossians 3, Philippians 4, over and over again. This is a part of what the apostles wrote to the churches because conflict, here's a, I'm just going to drop a bomb on you here, okay? Conflict happens in every church. Everyone. That's why the apostles so often write to all the churches about it. We pursue reconciliation. Third, the solution to conflict in the body isn't to abstain from the Lord's table. Here's what some people do. I'm not going to forgive them. I'm not going to do it. And so I won't partake of the Lord's table. I mean, do we really think God's up there going, oh, that, now right there, that is a righteous move right there. That is exactly what I'm going for. No. Yeah, don't partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, but go and make it right and reconcile and then eat together. That surely is what the Lord would want after reading a passage like this. The solution isn't abstaining from the table. The solution is loving your brothers and sisters. It's putting on love like you'll get to in chapter 13. Let me just give you a preview. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. Love bears 90% of things. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love looks like in a committed relationship. So the solution isn't abstaining from the table. The solution is love. Fourth, if you're sick or suffering, I mentioned this earlier, don't try to figure out whether it's from the Lord because of your lack of unity or lack of love. Just simply pursue unity and pursue love. All right? We'll let the Lord take care of the physical maladies. Fourth, Christians should be able to love and fellowship with other believers with whom they have less important differences. In a body like this, we have differences on how we school our children, ethnic differences, economic differences, political differences, differences in what we're interested in, and more. And all of those things pale in comparison to the unity we have because we're all bought by the blood of Christ. The world longs to see something that unifies them that's lasting. They don't have it. We do. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And she's of this ethnicity, I'm of this one, she has this view of this, I have that view of that. But we're brought together by a uniting force that's stronger than the things that would divide the people of God. So it's good to be at a church where people aren't like you. It shows something about the greatness of Jesus Christ. If you're at a church where everyone thinks like you and does everything like you all the time, 
I really don't believe Christ is as magnified as he is when people look at you and go, why do you have all those young families at your house? You're 85. We're in Bible study together. You have nothing in common. Oh, we have something wonderful in common. Can I tell you about him? Okay. Again, Corinth, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, men, women, all sorts of differences in that new group. And the Lord's table was a time to kind of get some clarity on who they all were together. So the Holy Spirit has given us lessons on how to participate in the Lord's table. The wrong way of eating at the table, the right way of eating at the table, which is Jesus, and the new way of eating at the table. There's certainly, if you're like me, studying through this passage, conviction that comes to your heart after a passage like this. There is that conviction. I would remind you of these words. If you've blown it, if you have sinned in this regard, can I please remind you of this? On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If you're like me and you've failed in some of these areas, if you see conviction in your heart because of some of these areas, I will remind you that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Your sins of failing to be unified, your sins of not loving others, preferring yourself, he died for your sins. He has made a covenant with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for your long-suffering. We praise you for bearing with us. We praise you for loving us, being patient with us. We praise you for being kind towards us. And now by way of application in prayer, Father, I pray that you would make us more like your Son, that we would treat one another as Christ has treated us. And in that way, we'd bring him much glory and honor. We pray this in his name. Amen.